Amen. All right, check this out. Orson, Orson, you, praise God, Orson's here. You made it back because you had a really weird trip. Pay attention. You ready? He's nervous. One day, Orson, he's driving down this uh, uh, rural road out here in Vegas, you know, somewhere out in the desert, right? And, and uh, he saw this three-legged chicken, right? And so he's, he's driving alongside this three-legged chicken for a while, and he's checking it out, right? He's a guy, and, and he knows the chicken was running 30 miles an hour, Ron. And so Orson, being a guy and all, he says, hey, hey, that's a, that's a pretty fast chicken there. But I wonder just how fast it can run. So Orson sped up his car to 45 miles an hour, but the chicken stayed right alongside of him. And so then Orson, he decided to speed up his car again. This time, to his surprise, the chicken was still running ahead of him at 60 miles an hour. And then all of a sudden, the chicken, next thing you know, he turns off down this uh, dirt road. He starts running down this really long driveway and went to this farmhouse there. And so Orson, he decides to follow the three-legged chicken. And he saw that at the farmhouse, there was this man out there in the front yard. And he was surrounded by dozens of these three-legged chickens. And so Orson, he yells out to the farmer from his car. He says, hey, how'd you get all these three-legged chickens? And the farmer simply replied, I breed them. You see, it's me, my wife, and my son living here. And we all like to eat the chicken leg. But since the chicken, leg, uh, chicken only has two legs, I decided to try something new. And so I started uh, breeding these three-legged varieties so we could each have our own favorite piece of the chicken. And Orson said, wow, that's pretty amazing. How do they taste? And the farmer replied, don't rightly know. Can't catch them. Three legs. Oz, three legs fast. Okay. And it's a good thing he couldn't catch them because those things are evil. Let's close in prayer. No. <laughs> but here's my point. How many of you guys say, has this ever happened to you? You start off your day, you're just driving around the car. Next thing you know, Orson there obviously had a serious surprise uh, that day when he took off on that journey. Didn't he? Did he not? Okay. And unfortunately, folks, he is not alone. What I've noticed as a Christian is many people in our world today are also on a surprise journey in life wasn't expecting it, and it wasn't from an evil chicken, even though they are. Uh, it's from an evil behavior, a bad behavior, an unfortunate behavior, and that is deliberately, even as Christians, deliberately not studying the Bible. And what that does is produce a self-imposed ignorance of God, leading us, even as Christians, down some pretty horrible paths. Okay, And because of this, now we have churches full of Christians who are acting like practical atheists. All we say, we believe in God. You've got to at least get that answer right. But folks, the acid test is there. The, the proof is by our lips and our lives, we're acting like God's not even there. And the world's watching us. And it's not just detrimental in our walk with God. It keeps other people from believing in God. So to avoid this irony of you and I as Christians living like these practical atheists, by not knowing who God is, we're going to continue in our study on the character of God, defeating practical atheism. How do you do that? Get back to the real and one and only God and who he is. And we've already seen the first thing we got to know about God. Hello, he is real. This is not a pipe dream. This is not opiate for the masses. God is real. The second thing we saw is God is personal or he is intimate. We have an intimate, personal beautiful relationship with the creator of the universe the thing is we need to treat it that way so that the world can see what they're missing okay and then last week we saw the third aspect of god's character hello god is wise the big theological term he is omniscient okay and there we saw that one way we know god is wise is because he tells us hello he knows the beginning from the end okay well why is that important that god knows the past the present and the future because hello he tells us not only what's going to happen in the past he predicts the future and he predicts in the future jesus christ is coming back and if you don't get saved before the seven year tribulation starts you're gonna be left behind and how many guys would say, knowing uh, that warning and receiving the gospel and getting saved before that event is probably a wise thing to do? 
right? That's a benefit. And that's why God gives us uh, this ability to see. He has the ability to see the future. And he warns us, okay? Jesus said that time frame is the worst time in the history of mankind. You don't want to be there. It's going to be so absolutely horrible that unless God kept it to seven years, the entire human race would be destroyed. And so you would think if God knowing that's coming, that he'd give us a heads up and a warning. That's what he has done. But people scoff and mock even today. And they are flirting with their worst day ever, okay? But that's not all. But the uh, second thing that I think we're going to benefit from knowing about the wisdom of God is, believe it or not, folks, there is no such thing as bad advice. Did you know that? Now, let me put the obvious disclaimer there. From God, that is. In fact, turn to somebody and say, from God, okay? There is no such thing as bad advice from God, okay? But don't take uh, my advice. Uh, let's listen to God's, okay? He tells us, would you just come to me I'll give you all the wisdom you need. I'll give you tons of it, okay? Why would you go anywhere else? I didn't say it. God did. Open your Bibles to James chapter 1. Let's take a look here. James chapter 1. And if you want to sound like uh, uh, you're this uh, French student, how do you pronounce that? What? Let's pray for Bobby right now. I didn't, what, did I, what was that? No, jamais. No. Uh, James chapter 1. Uh, if you find Hebrews, what do you do? Take a right or mumble, you'll get there. James chapter 1, we're going to read verses 5 through 8. Now, as you turn there, the context, of course, is trials and suffering. And a good thing when we get saved, everything's great. Yeah, oftentimes it gets worse because the world hates uh, the truth, as Jesus said. And if they persecuted him, he says, they're going to persecute you. But God doesn't leave us hanging high and dry. We only have a personal relationship with him. He says, if you need wisdom, if you need, if you will, some advice when you're going through hard times, just come to me. And yet that's our problem. But let's take a look at what he says. He's not just going to give us some wisdom. He's going to give us a ton of it, okay? Listen to what he says, okay? James chapter 1, uh, verse 5. Uh, let's take a look. Here's what he says. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, and again, the context is when you're going through trials, hard times, okay? If any of you, he says, lacks wisdom, he should what? Ask your friend. Do what feels right. Go to man's secular psychology. Oh, we'll get into that in the sermon. No, you go to God, hello, who gives what? generously on all without finding fault and it will no doubts about it it will be given to him but when you ask he must believe and not doubt why because he who doubts is like a, a wave of the sea should i listen to god should i listen to my friends should i listen to this that's when the troubles start right just do what he says god knows what he's doing he says, because you must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, you're uh, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he's going to receive anything from God. Why? Because he is a double-minded man. Make up your mind, man, or woe man. Whose advice are you going to listen to? You're double-minded. And so therefore, because of that, you're what? You're unstable in only a few things. Now, what's the word there? All. Everything you do, okay? But I think it's pretty simple, folks. And we're Christians. We know the right answer, Right? Uh, if we need wisdom for the problems we face in life, who do we go to? God. And to make sure we know that, God even tells us in his word, come to me, right? I'll give it to you. And, and, and notice what he says there. He says, I'm not just going to give you a little bit of wisdom. I'm not going to give you some wisdom just once in a while. Okay? He says, if you come to me and you don't doubt, I'm going to give you a, what's the word? Starts with G, generous amount with it, okay? It's almost like in this text, God is, we should know this, Right? But it's, but it's like God knows our tendencies to do it wrong. And so he literally, I get the uh, connotation, he's pleading with us, would you please come to me? Would you please come to me when you're going through a trial? Come on, the last thing you want to do, and yet how many people do this? When you go through a hard time, they turn away from God. And I'm talking even Christians. Like, whoa, what are you doing, man? That's just make it ten times worse. 
God says, would you come to me? Why? Because we saw last week, God is omniscient. He knows all things, right? And therefore, he's never going to give you bad advice. He doesn't do anything wrong. He knows it all. I mean, if you had a problem in life, wouldn't you want to go to the absolute expert every single time? That's God. Now, we know this. But in practicality, folks, this is what I've learned. Here's our problem. Even though we saw last week, the Bible clearly tells us God is the ultimate source of wisdom. Nobody's wiser than him. Uh, we, and he invites us here that we can seek that wisdom anytime we want. If we're honest with ourselves, we still don't seek his wisdom. We still don't turn to him. Okay? And then we have the audacity, even as Christians, to wonder why. Why is my life so unstable? Why am I being tossed to and fro? How come I'm not stable in my walk with Jesus Christ? Who's your God? Because who you go to for wisdom ultimately is your God. Who's your God? Who do you seek? And so I don't know about you guys, but I think if we're going to be, avoid being tossed to and fro in life and experience more stability in our walk with Jesus Christ, let alone make our troubles even worse, I'd say we better take a look at some of these bad sources of bad advice that we go to and dispel them today. How about you? Hey, thanks for participating, Bobby. I'm going to do it anyway, but uh, <laughs> you're all going along for the ride. Okay. Uh, but the first place that I've learned, boy, I've learned this the hard way. I, I'm sure you have too. The first place we get bad advice from, and we don't turn to, it's our feelings. <gasps> Isn't that picture great? See what happens when you eat chicken, right? <laughs> you know it's true, right? Okay, but it's, it's our feelings, right? Isn't the knee-jerk reaction? <laughs> just, oh, we're just, where's God in the picture? We don't even think about doing that. We run to our feelings. And yet, here's what the scripture says about the human heart, i.e. our feelings. This is not a good source of wisdom. Are you kidding me? Jeremiah 17, 9 says this. The human heart is what? It's not just deceitful. It's most deceitful. And it's what? Not just wicked. It's desperately wicked. I mean, in fact, who knows how really bad it is? God. Only God does, but we certainly don't know. Okay, but this is what we see in our text. Contrary to what society would say, the human heart, i.e. our feelings, is not a good source of wisdom, right? You're going to be deceived. Some wicked things are going to come out of that. So why in the world would you want to listen to that? And yet that's what our society says, right? Oh, just do whatever feels right. If you follow the heart, it'll lead you to deceit and wickedness. They skip that part, <laughs> right? But here's the problem. We know that. But oftentimes, how many times do we get caught up in that trap, right? And as long as we are going to seek our feelings instead of the Father, folks, we are headed for some serious trouble, okay? Because, folks, here's the deal. Uh, I don't care how good something feels. It doesn't make it right. Nor does it make it a wise thing to do, okay? And as long as we, again, would seek our feelings above the Father, we're in a heap of trouble. How many times did we have this great idea that we felt was going to be a cool thing to do? And it ended into disaster, like these people, let's watch this video again. They had an idea, Bobby, they felt was going to be awesome. Let's take a look.
other way. Another way. Oh, oh, God. Shit. Oh, ghost, put your head in the snow. Hey, no, 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 <laughs> oh, and now you know how the Planet of the Apes started, right? Somebody had a feeling, some man. Now, was that dangerous or what? Right? Every single one of those instances, somebody started off with a feeling. I feel this is going to be a great idea. It's not. Okay. And folks, that's the tip of the iceberg. I know we got our own stories. I got time just to share one story. If you guys haven't heard this one, I got tons of them. Uh, you know, what, what happens when you listen to feelings? Okay, one time I was in uh, high school and I uh, wasn't saved yet, and obviously, and uh, I was working after school with a friend of mine uh, at this pottery plant in Kansas there that my dad oversaw at the time. And our job was just to hand pack these boxes uh, full of uh, clay pots, you know, the flower pots, the clay pots there. Uh, and, the, and the lids and stuff for plants, and, and they'd be shipped out through various customers all over the Midwest, okay? And, one, and we're doing this after school at night, and one di uh, night, you know, in the midst of this teeding, uh, tedious, monotonous work, because it's literally just on a conveyor belt, man. It's just like, here's another, and you put about six pots there in a box, and then you tape it up, you put it over here, grab another box, start doing it. It's just hour after hour, hour, just packing boxes. Now, kids, you know, we're sitting there, we're bored out of our gourds, and all of a sudden, we felt, yeah, appropriate response. We felt like we had this wise idea to help alleviate our boredom, right? To pass the time. And so I kid you not, here's what we actually did. We decided we're going to mark with a black magic marker on the bottom of one of these clay pots there that they, the customer, whoever got this somewhere in the Midwest, that they're the lucky owners of the one millionth piece of pottery produced by this company. And if they would be so kind to return it, they'll get a $10,000 credit to their account. <laughs> so my friend and I, we chuckled at our creative wisdom that yeah, we felt would alleviate our boredom, and it did work there uh, for at least a couple days. And we forgot about it, moved on to other things, right? Just one of those moments in time. Well, until about three months later, my friend and I, we were called in my dad's office. Who was standing there? You ever get that look from your dad? Like, uh, you be dead. You, know, you ever get that? And your dad was looking at me with you be dead eyes, right? And, and honestly, we had totally forgotten about it. And so we're like, what do we do now? What's, what's, I don't even know what you're talking about. And, and we were completely bewildered uh, because we couldn't figure out what we did wrong until our eyes met with our wise idea on his desk. And it seems that one lucky customer had taken our method of alleviating our boredom serious and returned that pot for a $10,000 credit to their account. Needless to say, we left the office there uh, deflated, kicking ourselves, saying that wasn't a wise idea, that was a dumb idea. Okay? And we didn't feel very good about that afterwards. Man, I got a ton of those dumb stories. <laughs> right? You just feel, yeah, run with it. No. All right? And here's the point, folks. I shared some humorous examples on a video, and, and one from my life, just one of many, unfortunately. But if we're honest with ourselves, folks, feelings are one of the biggest sources of bad advice, right? I mean, think about our feeling. Why would you want to follow a feeling? Feelings are fickle. Feelings are unstable. Feelings are up. Feelings are down. Feelings are influenced from bad weather to a bad piece of chicken, which I realize is an oxymoron and redundant. 
okay? Uh, a bad piece of chicken. But anyway, they're completely unstable. So here's the logical point. Since our feelings are completely unstable, then any so-called advice we're going to get them is going to also be unstable. How many guys can figure that out without any help this morning, okay? And again, I shared some humorous examples, but if we're honest with ourselves, folks, sometimes our feelings and following what our heart or feelings told us to do, it's not funny at all. Sometimes that's why we got into that big giant mess. Sometimes that's why the relationship is now down the tubes. Sometimes that's why your life is going in a bad path. Because you felt that was a good idea. You didn't trust God. So I don't know. Wouldn't it be wise to seek advice from the one who knows all things, never makes a mistake, never changes, knows it all, gets it right every single time? Like God. We need to get into that knee-jerk reaction don't listen to your feelings. Feelings are deceitful. Our heart is desperately wicked. The old man, go to God. Go to God. He'll never lead you astray. The second place that I've learned that we get uh, bad advice from is our friends. You ever, you ever get this picture? Do you ever do this? Oh, why did I listen to this? Ugh! You ever do that? Like, come on, right? And if you notice that even so-called Christians' friends don't even give Christian advice, Right? And believe it or not, we're not the only ones that have dealt with this. Job dealt with the same thing, too. Okay? His three uh, comforters, I mean torturers, whatever those guys were, okay? supposed to be friends to help him in a time of trouble. right? Listen to what God said about his so-called three friends. Listen, Job 42, verse 7, God speaking says this. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Timonite, I am what? I am angry with you and your two friends. How many guys would say that's not a good thing to do? You don't want God angry at you. Okay, why? Because you have not been right in what you said about me as my servant Job was, right? Oh, they said a lot of words. They had a lot of opinions, gave them a lot of advice, but God says, what? Bunch of baloney. And then you're making me out looking like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't appreciate that. Okay, Job's three friends were not a good source of wisdom. They were saying all kinds of wrong things. They were giving bad advice and it was making God mad at them, which is not a good thing to do. Okay, so here's the point. So who in the world would listen to a so-called friend's advice? I don't care how long of a friend, with all due respect, above God. Isn't that crazy? I don't care how good of a friend it is. It doesn't make their wisdom right, and it doesn't make it infallible like God, who never gets it wrong. And once again, since we listen to our friends instead of the Father, we're headed for trouble. Let me give you another exciting story. One day... Now I am a Christian, right? So you think you're a Christian, you're going to wise up and do it right. Yeah, you've been there too, okay? Uh, this was the time, I kid you not, true story. I was at, uh, uh, went to Bible college at night, seminary at night too, and, uh, but working during the day, full-time at a job. So I'm in a job, warehouse job, right? And I'm working there with this other friend of mine, right? And uh, so we, uh, we had just got from our, our boss a new walkie-talkies, big giant warehouse, right? And, and this way we wouldn't have to yell through the whole warehouse, loudspeakers, right? We could just individually talk through the walkie-talkie, right? Much more appropriate, things of that nature. So it, plus we're guys, right? It's a new technology. We've got to test them out, right? <laughs> anyway, so one day we need the system. We got our new walkie-talkies, right? And, and we need the assistance of one of the other employees there, right? And so we called him on his walkie-talkie, but he wouldn't respond. And so we kept calling him, and he still wouldn't respond. We kept calling him, right? And, and finally, after about two or three or four or five times, he didn't respond. And, and then he did respond, and he sounded kind of perturbed at us. And so as it turned out, he was in the restroom, and he didn't want anybody to know about it. We should have stopped right there. But you know what happened? 
me and my friend got this wise idea. And we thought, oh, oh. Oh, you don't want anybody to know that you're in the restroom. We'll help you out. And I kid you not, my part in the play was this. I proceeded to make various uh, gastric noises, explosions uh, on the radio, you know, all that stuff. And the other guy, he piped in with these grunts and groans and things of that nature. And, and we started to chuckle at our creative wisdom and stuff. And, and the guy in the restroom, our other friend, he wasn't to be outdone. No, no. He proceeded to place his walkie-talkie over the toilet, and he flushed it a couple times. It was all over the place. It was, it was incredible. And so he came out, and we laughed at all of us, friends and all, at our creative wisdom. Tom, you know it's getting worse now. And we forgot about it until about an hour later. <laughs> you see, it just so happened that uh, my boss was in a very serious sales meeting in his office. At the exact time, we got our wise idea. And it just so happened my boss had a walkie-talkie too. Of course, he had to communicate with us. And he just happened to have his on too. Only it was right on top of his desk, full blast, between him and the important salespeople, and he couldn't reach it. So suddenly it dawned on us that their meeting was entertained by gastric noises and explosions and grunts and groans, even a couple toilet flushes to, to boot, and my boss was trying real hard to look professional and serious. <laughs> Needless to say, we left his office kicking ourselves, deflated, stupid idea. And my boss wasn't friendly after that for some reason, okay? <laughs> but once again, how many, how much, how many times have we got to go, go through this stuff, guys? Before we realize that, listen, a friend's wisdom is not the best place to go. And if we're honest with ourselves, friends give me some of the biggest sources of bad advice. Why? Because it's, it's kind of a, a spinoff part two of the first point with your feelings. Our friends are just like us. Our friends also have a deceitful, sinful, wicked heart. So that means, as good of a friend they are, they have a limited amount of wisdom. They might come up with a good idea once in a while, but they're not infallible like God. So why in the world would we turn to them instead of God as our knee-jerk reaction? Because our friend's wisdom, as good as they are, even a Christian friend, because it's unreliable, then any so-called advice we get from them is also going to be unreliable. How many guys can figure that out without any help, okay? And again, I shared another humorous example to help the medicine go down. But folks, let's be honest. How many relationships, dare I say, I could tell you some horrible stories. How many marriages have been ruined because somebody listened to their so-called friend's advice, even so-called Christian friend's advice, and now that relationship is gone because they didn't turn to God. It's not funny at all sometimes. How many times do we got to get burned? And so I'm thinking, I mean, wouldn't it be wise to seek advice from one who knows all things and never makes a mistake, always gets it right, and never changes like God? Absolutely. Now, the third and final one that I want to talk about today, and this one, I have preached this every single church I have had the privilege to pastor, every single one. And it still blows me away, even to this day, how many people, it's just like you're talking to a brick wall, okay? But the third bad source of advice that people turn above the word of God is Freudian psychology. You talk about the blind leading the blind, are you, I didn't say this. God did. God compares man. I don't care how smart. I don't care what the person's IQ is. Compared to God's wisdom, listen to God's summation of that. Here's what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. So where does this lead? Let's compare it now, shall we? Where does this lead the philosophers? You know, man's greatest minds, the scholars, and the world's most brilliant debaters. What? God has made them all look what? Foolish and has shown their wisdom to be what? Useless nonsense. 
in comparison to God. And so God's pretty blunt about this. I'm not making this up, right? Okay, uh, God says that contrary to what society would say, not even the world's most brilliant minds are a good source of wisdom, are they? No, in comparison to God's wisdom, man's wisdom is not just foolishness, it's downright nonsense. So here's my point. When you're going through a hard time, where's God? Who in their right mind would turn to the mind of man over the word of God, even secular psychology, which is supposed to be the pinnacle of man's so-called wisdom? And yet here's the problem. We are even in the church. We are tempted to no longer seek the Father's wisdom, but the wisdom of a Freudian psychologist. We're told to seek professional help instead of the power of God. And I don't care how professional it sounds. It doesn't make it right, and it doesn't make it wise. And as long as we'd rather listen to a secular psychologist instead of our Savior, you're headed for trouble every single time. You will always be steered in the wrong direction. Why? Because when you do the study yourself, folks, Secular psychology, basically everything they teach is the exact opposite of what God says. Everything. Listen to this, okay? Let's take a look. Uh, scripture versus secular psychology. The Bible says that man is the creation of God. But psychology says, nope, you're a creation of evolution, okay? Uh, the Bible says that man's purpose is to glorify God. Psychology says, nope, man's purpose is to fit in with their fellow man. The Bible says that God is the ultimate supreme authority. Hello, that's what we've been dealing with the last two weeks. But psychology says, no, man is the supreme authority. That's where you get all the stuff from. The Bible says that the word of God is the standard of our behavior. Psychology says, no, the norm of society is the norm and standard of our behavior. The Bible says the biggest obstacle in life is sin. Psychology says, no, the biggest obstacle is mental illness. Now you've got something to blame your sin on and not be accountable for. Okay, the uh, Bible says that bad behavior comes from internal sin nature, right? The heart's deceitfully wicked, right? Exactly. Oh, no. Listen to this. Psychology says it comes from sexual repression and our external environment. It's somebody else's fault again. Okay, the Bible says that repentance and faith in Christ can effectively change sinful behavior. Yay, there's a way out. I don't have to live like this in bondage anymore. Not what psychology says. No, here's the way out. They say to change sinful behavior, you need to place your guilt on other people, free your repressed desires, take drugs, submit to psychoanalysis, sensitivity training, or group therapy. Take your pick. So I don't know about you guys. You seem pretty smart today. So the choice is yours. What do you want? You want wisdom from the Holy Bible inspired by Almighty God, who's the one who made us? Or modern psychology invented by men who have a wicked, sinful heart like the rest of us, like Jeremiah says. Okay? And again, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of thinking I'm going to stick with the Word of God. I, I think the Bible was sufficient, as the Scripture says, for all of our needs before Sigmund Freud showed up. Did, did it go away when, when psychology, is we supposed to put this down now? The Bible's been fine the whole time, folks. We just need to get back to it. The church has been invaded by some serious, and dare I, I'll use this word. I'll use this word because I'm going to demonstrate it to you. The church has been invaded by sick minds. Okay? Not only do the teachings of secular psychology totally contradict Scripture, we just saw that. That's just the tip of the iceberg. But when you take a look at these so-called pillars of psychology, their lives are absolutely whacked out. And I'm supposed to listen to them for advice? Are you kidding me? Let's take a look at some major pillars. I'm not doing all of them, or we could, have, we could be here for two days exploring the background of these people. But I'm supposed to listen to these people for family counseling, personal counseling? Are you kidding me? 
We've talked a little bit about this before, but we're going way deeper today. But let's take a look at these so-called pillars of secular psychology, starting with the big guy, Sigmund Freud. He was an evolutionist who believed that man had evolved from lower animals and that the idea of Almighty God was just a myth made up by our forefathers to cope with life and, quote, religion must be destroyed. What we're doing here is bad for you. Get rid of it. What? Why would I ever listen to him? It gets even worse. Yet at the same time, Freud... Folks, every one of these things, I'll give you the documentation after service if you want it. This is secular knowledge. It's out there. I'm going to show a secular video. This, everybody knows this if you do the research. He was also at the same time deeply involved in the occult and periodically consulted soothsayers who were alleged to have telepathic powers. He was fascinated by it. In fact, he was an honorary fellow of the American Society for Psychical Research, but he even remarked that if he could live his life over again, quote, he would devote it to psychical research rather than psychoanalysis. But his rationale was, I've invested so much time in the psychoanalysis, I can't stop now, but man, I really wish I could get into this psychic phenomenon. That's where his heart actually was. And not only was he deeply involved in the cold, okay, but he was extremely enthusiastic uh, about the so-called health benefits of cocaine which he used during his work, which he actually admits he got a lot of his ideas from while he was high on cocaine. You don't believe me? This is an interview. It's not Christian. It's from John Hopkins University. Even they know, secular college, what he was really doing and where did he really get his eyes from. It's called from uh, ideas from. It's called from a cocaine high. Watch this. Now a tale of cocaine addiction involving two leading figures in the history of medicine. Sigmund Freud and William Halstead were two medical revolutionaries. Freud, the well-known father of psychoanalysis, Halstead, the less well-known father of modern surgery. Across the Atlantic and long before psychoanalysis, a young Dr. Freud also believed that cocaine might be his ticket to fame and fortune. One of his closest friends was addicted to morphine, and Freud published journal articles proclaiming cocaine was the cure but he also had a more personal interest in the drug's effects. Freud loved the way cocaine made him feel. And he uh, was very interested in its psychological components. For one, it did make him feel better when he was sad. He also was amazed at how it made him talk about things endlessly that he thought were locked away in his brain. Sound familiar? That's talk therapy, but without the toxic side effects of cocaine. But he got to like it a little bit too much. Did any of this, the writings, the dreams, the sense of euphoria, all the things that he got from using cocaine, did any of those lead to anything that we now see in psychiatry today? Well, it did. It did. For, to begin with, the idea of talk therapy where you talk freely or free associate from one thing to another may have been inspired by the cocaine unleashing his tongue or his repressed memories. But most importantly, cocaine haunts the pages of the interpretation of dreams. The model dream is a cocaine dream, what addiction therapists would call a using dream. He was using cocaine quite a bit in 1895 on himself to the point he was having chest pain, he was depressed, and he also, his nose was so congested, he had to have a surgeon open it up with a knife so he could breathe. Lots of signs that you might want to lay off the stuff. Uh, yeah. He went on to say that actually got so bad at one point while he was using cocaine, he almost killed a patient. Check it out yourself. Okay, but it gets even worse. That's not the only drug. He also had a severe addiction to nicotine to the tune of smoking on average 20 cigars a day, okay, which eventually led to his death. Okay, and he even refused to be psychoanalyzed himself by his own teachings. You know what they call that in the South? 
hypocrite. <laughs> it's a hypocrite. Excuse me. All right. But stir all this together. And here's the point, folks. Today, listen, if one of the main primary founders of modern secular psychology, Sigmund Freud, had a severe drug problem and even thought that dangerous drugs would somehow benefit other people and was a part of their therapy, then is it any wonder that modern psychology is following his footsteps, pushing also dangerous drugs that do nothing but hurt people? Watch this. Psychological study from the National Institute of Mental Health. Just this morning, along this long time cycle, the of depression is growing wider, broader. 15% of women suffer from this disorder. Abnormalities in the neurotransmitters. Six million American kids take prescribed medication. But what if the criminal is mentally ill? The punishment, a form of aversion therapy. Everywhere you look, there it is. Think psychiatry has nothing to do with you? Think again. The whole field of psychiatry has gotten into every facet of your life. They basically believe that everyone is mentally ill. You smoke too much, it's a disease. You're too unhappy, it's a disease. You're too thin, it's a disease. You're too fat, it's a disease. Where are these coming from? These are coming from the minds of psychiatrists that are dreaming these things up. Writing papers and, get, and getting published with their names on it. Calling, creating these new diseases. First he said that I had ADD. Then he said that I was depressed. Then he said I might be bipolar but I don't have ADD anymore. And he said, you know, I've been noticing you and I, I wonder if you have it too. What they decided is that both my husband and my son had a chemical imbalance that needed to be corrected with a chemical balancer. There is not one shred of credible evidence that any respectable scientist would consider valid demonstrating that anything that psychiatrists call mental illness our brain diseases or biochemical imbalances. It's all fraud. There's no reliability of diagnosis and there is no science. It's just pseudoscience. It's pretend science. This is one of the most open secrets in all of America in the psychiatric field. That nothing, nothing is being done that's legitimate and they're billing for it. Psychiatrists claim that over one billion of the world's population is mentally ill. In the past 30 years, they have prescribed psychiatric medications to 543 million people. And right now, they drug 17 million schoolchildren with stimulants and antidepressants. It is really tragic. It's awful. And it's being done for money. That's why it's being done. Oh, it's got to be in the billions. I don't know the exact number, but it's got to be in the billions. It's, it's just unbelievable. This is so big that it's... It buckles the mind. Take the human tragedy you have just seen and multiply it by the millions. In the past four decades, nearly twice as many Americans have died in government psychiatric hospitals than in all U.S. wars since 1776. And while raking in over $2 trillion annually, psychiatrists cannot point to a single cure. Sounds like a scam. It's illegal to push drugs on the street. You go to jail. But apparently this is acceptable. And it's killing just as many people. It's crazy. Did you notice the subtitles are up there? Who were these people? 
from their own camp. I'm not making this up, folks. Do the research for yourself. Let's take a look at another one. Abraham Maslow. You should be familiar with him in school. Said his life's work was motivated by his absolute hatred of his mother. And I'm going to listen to you for family advice. Excuse me? He also said that all people who are religious, you and I, are either hypocrites or feeble-minded. And that science to, uh, to him was a god. And that human sexuality is just like primate sexuality. Just treat us like a bunch of apes. Therefore, not surprising, he developed his famous unbiblical hierarchy of needs. How many of you guys remember that in school? At Maslow, right? All right. Exactly opposite of what the Bible says for a fulfilling life. He taught that in order for people to be fulfilled, self comes first. That's the number one law of Satanism. Been there, done that. Do what you will shall be the whole of the law. That's the number one law of Satanism. That's what caused the fall of Satan. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. I will be like God. I will ascend to the mount of the assembly. I will be worshipped. I, 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 self. So that's his pinnacle. Self comes first. And one needs to esteem themselves first above all and meet all your self needs before you can supposedly love other people and have a fulfilling life. Excuse me. The Bible says the greatest fulfilled life is one who loves God first your neighbor second, and esteem others better than yourself, and deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow Christ, and suffer if need be. Exactly opposite. Karen Horney, she suffered severe bouts of depression throughout her life. She attempted uh, suicide at one point. She was, uh, decided she wasn't happy with her marriage, so she began a life of constant sexual affairs, which her husband didn't even object to, by the way. Oh, and let's go to you for marriage advice. Uh, she also had a serious sexual addiction for young men, which included her own students and fellow colleagues, and even had sexual relations with other women as well. Then towards the end of her life, she became interested in Zen Buddhism, trying to see the connection between psychoanalysis and meditation. These are the pillars of secular psychology. Excuse me, let's get the other big guy real quick. Carl Jung, he made a wooden man out of a ruler that he called mannequin, and he kept it in a wooden case and frequently talked to it in times of trouble. Check it out yourself, folks. I'm not making this up, and I'm going to listen to this guy for advice. You've got to be kidding me. He even had, and this is his own writings, he had a mystical experience while he sat on a rock one day where he couldn't tell if he was the rock or the rock was him. <laughs> Whoa! Then later he had what he considered his own writings, a major breakthrough in life. He figured, this was a major breakthrough in his life. Listen, he, when he supposedly had this vision of God going to the bathroom from the sky and it landed and smashed through a church sanctuary, thing that's a major breakthrough for him you what but most people don't realize he was extremely uh even more so than freud was absorbed in the occult studied their teachings attended seances listened to mediums and practiced necromancy okay and he had daily contact with these embodied spirits okay that he called archetypes the bible calls them demons and much of what he wrote was inspired by these demons one of them he called philemon Okay, listen to what he wrote about this entity that would show up and give him ideas. Quote, he said, Philemon's and other figures in my fantasies brought home to me the crucial insight that there are things in the psyche which I do not produce, but which produce themselves and have their own life. Philemon represented a force which was not myself. In my fantasies, I held conversations with him, and he said things which I had not consciously thought. Where is it coming from? This entity. For I observed clearly that it was he who spoke, not I. Philemon was a mysterious figure to me. I went walking up and down the garden with him, and to me he was what the Indians, Hindu gurus, uh, called a guru. That's what the Bible calls a demon, a familiar spirit. And that's just one of them. He also had another one that he listened to, a so-called spirit guide, it's a demon, and he called it Basilides, however you pronounce that. And this is what he admits inspired him, this spirit inspired him to his so-called famous work, The Seven Sermons to the Dead. Came from this demon. 
right? He even stated that the work was very much identical to possession. His words, not mine. Listen to how this book came about. This is a direct quote from him. Then it was as if my house began to be haunted. His words, not mine. My eldest daughter saw a white figure passing through the room. My second daughter, independent of her sister, relayed that twice in the night her blanket had been snatched away. And then that same night, my nine-year-old son had an anxiety dream. Around five o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday, the front doorbell began ringing frantically. It was a bright summer day. The two maids were in the kitchen from which the open square outside the front door could be seen. Everyone immediately looked to see who was there, but there was no one in sight. I was sitting near the doorbell and not only heard it, but saw it moving. We all simply stared at one another. So a demon had showed up and he said, over the next three evenings, the book was written. And as soon as he began to write, and I quote, the whole ghostly assemblage evaporated, the room quieted and the atmosphere cleared, quote, the haunting was over. And that's what inspired him to write that one work. Philemon and Basilides, that's just two of the spirit guys. Another one, there's a whole list, other ones he did. Another one he called Salome. Folks, these are all demons. And this is where he got his ideas. In fact, I didn't say that. He did. Listen, he admitted, quote, these conversations with the dead formed a kind of prelude to what I had to communicate to the world about the unconscious. Direct quote, all, how much? All my works, all my creative activity has come from those initial fantasies. Fantasies. This is from demons, okay? And that's why experts are saying young psychology makes him, in essence, the father of new age, giving it a theoretical framework for channeling and other demonic new age practices. Now, folks, you seem pretty wise as we get ready to close today. Maybe it's just me. I hope I'm not being too overly judgmental. But how many guys would say that those psychologists had some serious psychological problems? <laughs> yeah, okay. Why would you listen to them? And yet this is what the scripture says we should be doing, okay? We, we don't seem to have enough sense. Proverbs 12, 8 says this, everyone admires a person with what? Good sense. But a warped mind should be what? Should be despised. Why would you ever go in that direction? That's crazy. That's wild. But this is our problem. Even in the church, we don't seem to have enough good sense to recognize when some people have a warped mind and turn away from it, run from it, go in a different direction. Who in their world would ever want to listen to them? I don't have time to go into, but folks, uh, even there's, you put it to the test. Well, maybe it's still a good idea. What well, came from a demon? It's not going to be. But you do the statistical studies, folks. It says, studies have shown that the lives of secular psychologies are just as messed up as their patients and even worse in many cases. And this is a direct quote, not from me, folks. One guy said, one research quote, psychotherapy may be known in the future as, quote, the greatest hoax of the 20th century. And is it any wonder? Should it be a surprise? The basis of your so-called wisdom is based on the lie of evolution from atheists who were addicted to drugs and all heavily involved in the occult and guilty of some serious sexual immorality. What do you expect? And so here's the point. Because they're so completely unbiblical and demonic, then any so-called advice we're going to get from them is also going to be unbiblical and demonic. Can anybody figure that one out? So why in the world would we go to them for any kind of advice? Hey, I got a sin problem. I got a relationship. I got, oh, here's what you do. You blame your parents, divorce your spouse as soon as they're not meeting your needs and love yourself more than anybody. And you wonder why it gets worse. Oh, and take these drugs. When the whole time, here it is. All you need. I didn't say it, God did. What do we have here in the Bible? Just for some problems we have in life? Sufficient for all, God said. Are we going to call him a liar? Since when was this not good enough? 
to meet our needs, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, maritally, relationally, you name it. Folks, if there's going to be any hope for our nation, if there's going to be any hope for a revival uh, in the church, folks, we have to start doing what the Scripture says. We need to live selfless lives like Jesus Christ. We need to start promoting what needs to come first. That's Jesus' love, Jesus' esteem, and Jesus' respect if there's any hope for our nation. And stop listening to this baloney, folks. It's causing way more pain. We've got to seek God's wisdom. We say, oh yeah, sure we will, but what's our knee-jerk reaction? Who do we turn to? Is it your friends? Is it your feelings? Do you go this route? How many times do we got to get burned? Pick up the word of God. Get in there. He'll never lead you astray. And until we get back to that, folks, we are causing ourselves some serious, serious heartache. We'll close in prayer after this. Uh, a young man, he's getting ready to graduate from college and and for many months, uh, he admired this beautiful sports car in this dealer's showroom. And, and knowing his father could well afford it, he told him, that's all he wanted, man. Just give me this hot rod sports car, man. That's all I want for graduation. Just give me this hot rod sports car. And so finally, the morning of his graduation came, and, and the young man's father called him into his private study. And, and there his father told him how proud he was to have such a fine son. And, and, and he told him how much he loved him. And, and then he handed his son a beautifully gift-wrapped box. Well, curious, but somewhat disappointed because it didn't look like a car. The young man opened the box, and he found a lovely leather-bound Bible with the man's name embossed in gold right on front. And so now, angry, he rose with his voice to his father, and he yells at him. He says, with all your money, you give me a Bible? And he storms out of the office. Well, many years passed by, and the young man, he became very successful in the world, in business. He had lots of money. He had a beautiful home. You know, all the stuff they say you need to have. And uh, He realized that his father was old, and he thought, well, he should perhaps go see him because, you see, he had not seen or spoken to his father since that graduation day. But, but before he could make arrangements, he received notice telling him that his dad had passed away and his father had willed to him all his possessions to his son. And so he arrived back to his father's house and with sudden sadness and regret filling his heart, he began to search through his father's important papers and he saw the still gift-wrapped Bible just like he left it years ago. But now this time with tears in his eyes, he opens up the Bible and he begins to turn the pages and he, and he noticed that his dad had carefully underlined a verse, Matthew 7, 11. And if ye being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly father, which is in heaven, give to those who ask him? And as he read those words, listen, a car key dropped from the back of the Bible and it had a tag with the dealer's name on it, the same dealer who had that same sports car he wanted so long ago. And on the tag was the date of his graduation and the words paid in full. Can you imagine the years of regret? Bang! Smashing down upon him at that point. Why? Didn't I listen? Cost him his blessing. Destroyed his relationship with his dad. Folks, I... In closing, I can't think of a better way to encapsulate this study. As long as we forsake God's word in the Bible and run off to this world and to listen to other things, then we're going to be filled even as Christians with years of regret. And we too are going to miss out on the blessings that are contained within. And dare I say, it's going to become a huge stumbling block in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. How many times do we got to get burned 
when we go through a hard time and God gives us something, a beautiful gift, the Bible. When are we going to get to the knee-jerk reaction where we say, absolutely, yes, God, thank you for giving me the greatest gift of all. Thank you for showing me the right way out of this every single time instead of running from it and throwing it. Let's not get burned anymore. Not just for us, but for our world who's watching us. We say, hey, Jesus is all you need. God's real. He knows it all. Let's show it with our lips and our lives that we believe it too. And we turn to him every single instance. Every time we need an answer, let's go to him and get back to being those positive witnesses for Jesus, for Las Vegas and around the world. Amen? Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven, and that's because God is holy and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness or the wrong things that we have done have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin or unholiness uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma, even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy. We're not perfect like him. Uh, let's take a, a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you have ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay? How many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay, well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief. Okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word? Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy. Okay? And folks, let's be honest. We've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that, and it's just as bad. He knows the mind. He knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents 
that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God. And you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn. We, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it. And a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a of death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it. If he would grant them what's called a pardon, out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell, and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him, to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in his work 
on the cross to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.